This time in the Planet Earth podcast, sex and the survival of bee colonies. I'm Richard Hollingham. Welcome to Tadcaster in North Yorkshire, where I'm suited up to find out about this latest bee research. We'll also be hearing about collecting coral from the Atlantic seabed and the rivers still recovering from the legacy of acid rain. The ecological and biological recovery is lagging behind what you would expect from the change in chemistry. Up to a third of the food grown in the UK is pollinated by honeybees. So it's in all our interests to combat the global decline in the honeybee population. The collapse of colonies has been linked to pesticides, mites, fungi and viruses. And science teams around the world are doing their best to understand what's going on. Well, the approach being taken by researchers at the University of Leeds is to look at the bees' sex lives. The theory is that the more genetically diverse the colony, the more likely it is to survive. And with Sophie Everson at the university's Agriculture Research Centre. And Sophie, I'm not going to pretend this is a glamorous location. We're behind the back of a pig farm, but you do have some, some hives. Yeah, we're at the university's pig research unit, but we actually have our honeybee hives here. Now, you've got the full suit on. You've got this um, white, I don't know, overalls, bee really. Suit. Bee suit. Bee suit which consists of gloves, this big overall, and the net arrangement around your uh, your face. And I've got one on as well, so I need to put all this on and zip it up. So you need to protect your face from the bee stings. <laughs> the bee That's stings, so are we likely to get stung? If we didn't have protection, we probably would get stung. Okay. We might get stung anyway. Okay, thanks. <laughs> so I guess to zip up the hood over my face. It says a net arrangement over my face with these hoops coming out. I'm going to put gloves on as well. You've got a smoker here. What, yeah. What's this going to do? They don't exactly know what the smoke does, but it calms the honeybees down. So a little bellows arrangement on the, the back of this, this pot. It does smell rather nice, actually, the smoke coming out of that. OK, I think we're ready. OK, and we're approaching the first of the, the three hives here. So if you just smoke the entrance first, give them a warning. And bees are pouring out of there. So we've taken the, the topmost layer of the, the hive up and it's teeming with bees. A little bit of a honeycomb there. We, wow, on... look at that. So you, you pull that up and you're holding this, this honeycomb panel and it's just covered in bees and all look really busy. What are they doing across this, this honeycomb here? So around the edge we have the honey. Wow, yes, these, it's glistening in, the, glistening in the sunshine. In here is pollen. You see, it's a different colour. Okay, so it's a sort of it's solid, solid sort of lumps. It's almost like someone's pushed something into into those yep, sections. Yep. So they pack in the pollen into that area, and then in this area we have the the baby bees. So this is the brood. Can you see? Here is a big larvae. Well, this seems really strange. I've, I've got this protective top on, but getting very close to them. And here, seems very strange. A, this is okay. A bee with pollen on its legs. So that's what those yellow packages are so pollen delivering the pollen yep so right in the middle we've got a single capped cell so the honeybee larvae develop and eventually the the workers cap the brood and then they metamorphosize within the cell and then eventually a, a, a bee will a emerge bee will come out. so tell me about the sex life of bees the queen mates with multiple males she's fairly promiscuous in fact She's one of the most promiscuous animals in the animal kingdom. The giant honeybee 
they've been found to mate with over 100 males. But the, the species that we work with, Apis mellifera, on average they mate with 12 males. At once? Yeah. When the colony decides to reproduce, the current queen will abandon the colony with half of the workers. The remaining workers will raise a new queen who, when she's ready, will leave the hive and she'll go on a mating flight and she'll mate with all 12 males in one afternoon. Well, 12 males in one <laughs> afternoon. On average. On average. How much of the genetic material from those males is, is incorporated into the, the next generation, if you like? All of it. So all of the sperm that she keeps in, in her body, she will use to fertilise the eggs. I mentioned some of the threats that bees are under, but what are you specifically looking at? So we're looking at a, a chronic brood disease called chalk brood, which is caused by a fungal parasite. It doesn't usually cause colony losses, but the chronic nature of it means that, along with other impacts such as climate change, pesticides, they're under a lot more pressure. So we're trying to understand the genetic basis of this disease with the view to better bee breeding. I'm just going to put the microphone beside the hives. You can get an idea of just how many bees there are here. Well, as we stand here, we've also been joined by Bill Hughes, who's supervising this project. And we've been talking, Bill, about the incredible sex life of, of these bees. Does that give them uh, inbuilt, if you like, a genetic diversity? Yeah, it does. I mean, and, and we believe that this is the reason why honeybees have evolved such an incredible sex life, because having this genetic diversity within the colony gives them a real advantage in coping with particularly fluctuations and unpredictable environments. In the case of our project, we're specifically looking at unpredictability in terms of different pathogens and diseases they may get, but it also, we know, benefits them in terms of their um, foraging in unpredictable environments. But if you've got this, why are they facing so many problems? Is that, is that no longer the case? You've no longer got this genetic diversity? Well, it's, it's probably a little bit of both sides of the coin. So on one side of the coin, it's quite plausible that at the moment they may have somewhat reduced genetic diversity because we've got the situation, particularly in places like the UK, that is not very natural compared to where they evolved in Africa. The genetic diversity of hives may be lower than it would naturally be, because, particularly because we've got lots of colony losses at the moment. The other side of the coin is the threats they're facing are rather unnatural compared to what they evolved with. They've got a greater diversity of parasites than they evolved with. We particularly have parasites which have jumped host from the Asian honeybees to the European honeybees, which we have. And we've also got additional stresses. We've got landscape change resulting in a more restricted diversity of food, particularly in, in more country areas. And we've also got additional stresses like pesticides, of course, so they've got this kind of, as well as their natural threats, their natural stresses, they've also got all these man-made stresses as well, which in combination may mean that although they're, they've evolved to be fantastically successful thanks to their genetic diversity, it may no longer be quite enough for them. But the theory is if you could increase that genetic diversity, then they've got a better chance of coping with all the things that the world is throwing at them. Yeah, that's right. I think... Given all that the world is throwing at them, it's particularly critical to maintain their genetic diversity. I don't think it's necessary to think about enhancing it beyond what they would naturally have, but it's very, very important that they maintain it. And how will you use 
this research and the, the research that Sophie's doing? So it's very important to understand the genetic basis of how they resist and how they deal with the diseases and the importance of genetic diversity in the colony for doing this. And so through the work that Sophie's doing and the understanding we're going to get, it will both help allow us to kind of quantify how important it is for the success of a colony that a beekeeper maintains the genetic diversity in it. And it will also, by identifying the genes or giving insight into the genes that are involved in resistance, give us tools that we may potentially be able to use to breed more resistant bees. If we understand what genes are involved in resistance to a particular parasite, which may be particularly abundant in a certain area of the country, then beekeepers in that area might want to try and select for bees which have those genes. So breed a, a better bee, if you like? Indeed. There, probably, there will never be a single better bee, but better bees for the particular problems which a certain beekeeper's facing, yeah. Well, Bill Hughes and Sophie Everson, thank you both. And you can see some pictures of the hives here in Yorkshire on our Facebook page. And for more features, reports and podcasts on bees, visit Planet Earth online. Now, when I was a teenager in the 1980s, the big environmental story of the day wasn't global warming, but acid rain, caused primarily by emissions of sulphur dioxide and nitrogen oxide from power stations and factories. Acid rain damaged plants, soils, and ended up in rivers and streams. Although the problem's largely gone away, well, at least in Western Europe, the legacy lives on. Well, I went to meet Steve Ormerod, Professor of Ecology at Cardiff University, and Matthew Dre, one of his research team who's looking at a related problem, and asked Steve first about the long-term legacy of acid rain. About half of the length of rivers in upland Wales, that's about 12,000 kilometres overall, have been affected by the problem of acid rain. Oxides of sulphur and nitrogen that form acids, that acidify soil, and then actually pass that problem into our river systems and that problem is worse wherever there is less calcium and magnesium in the soil system and there is less ability to buffer that incoming acidity. And when did this happen? So so this has really been a problem uh, post-industrialisation associated with the growth of emissions from factories and industry and power generation and vehicles. And in fact, the problem of acid rain peaked in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And since that time, what we've been trying to understand essentially is the recovery processes uh, that have occurred in our river system, particularly with respect to effects on organisms that live in the river, insects, fish, and then consequences also for things like river birds. And how have they recovered, or haven't they? As you would expect, as emissions of acidifying substances have gone down, so the river pHs have slowly come up, something like about 0.2 to 0.3 units every decade. But what, intriguingly, we're seeing is that there is a mismatch in the speed of recovery in chemical terms, and that actually shown by the organisms that live in rivers. And what we think is that the ecological and biological recovery is lagging behind what you would expect from the change in chemistry. So the river water is fine and it should support much more life than it does? Well, the river water, in fact, is fine on average, but, but in, in, what, what we think is the reason why organisms aren't recovering quite so rapidly is that during wet conditions, stormy conditions, exactly of the type that we had this summer, there is a reacidification, so short duration episodes of acidity that 
wipe out acid sensitive organisms and we think that's what's preventing this this longer term recovery where's this acid coming from why why are you getting these short bursts of acidity even just adding lots of water to our catchments by the way of rainfall is enough to dilute all the calcium and magnesium that would normally buffer acidification and also because of that kind of 150 years of the stored effects of acid deposition of acid rain we've very substantially depleted what buffering there might once have been in our soils. How does this compare to ocean acidification because we've reported a lot about that on the planet earth podcast so so these really are two extremely different but but quite interesting processes so as we've mentioned in the case of river acidification it's sulfur and nitrogen oxides that are responsible for the acidifying substances in the case of marine systems essentially a, a ph reduction is being caused by huge volumes of carbon dioxide that are dissolving in seawater and actually driving the ph down What's astonishing is how different the pH reduction is. So in the case of of marine acidification, we're talking about 0.2 or 0.3 of a pH unit. In rivers, acidification that we saw because of acid rain was something of the order of 1.5 pH units, so dramatically different. Well, the reason that the oceans are becoming more acidic is because of increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And I'm also with Matthew Dre, and you're looking at what the increased effects of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere might have on on freshwater. That's right. So my work involves looking at how elevated atmospheric carbon dioxide affects tree leaf litter chemistry and then how that leaf litter then decomposes in freshwater ecosystems. So when you say leaf litter, you just mean, well, leaves falling off the trees, falling to the ground, the the chemicals, the, the decomposition ending up in the river. That's right. So what we're looking at here is that increased carbon dioxide affects leaf litter by changing the composition of its carbon-nitrogen ratio. And when the carbon-nitrogen ratio decreases, we see effects on the river system. So with increased levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the chemistry of leaves is, is changing. That's right, that's right. So basically we end up with carbon levels staying the same, but nitrogen levels dropping relative to that carbon. Now what happens alongside that is that we can get other changes. Uh, That includes increases in defensive chemicals, which generally are quite unpalatable to organisms that might feed on that material. We can also see increases in things like uh, what are called uh, lignin and cellulose, which are basically the structural components of those leaves. So therefore, carbon dioxide makes those leaves tougher and more difficult to break down. So why does this matter for the river? Okay, so rivers in woodlands are very dependent on inputs of leaf litter. Uh, That's the, the main source of organic nutrients when that changes, when the amount of carbon changes, you then find that the general chemical composition of that river will change at that point and further beyond that point downstream. And Steve, what difference does that make to, to the river, to the wildlife, to the plants, to the insects? So, of course, when we're talking about carbon, we're talking about uh, something that's an absolutely fundamental component of all living things. And th- these two main sources of carbon, either from plant litter or from production of algae and other things within the stream, is what drives the whole production of the river system. What goes into the invertebrates, what goes into the fish, what goes into the birds and the bats and the otters and various other things. So if there is a fundamental change in the chemistry of leaves to that extent, quite how far that, that pervades river ecosystems in general is something we need to know far more about but we're very much at the beginning of that process. 
So you've been looking at the effects of acid rain on rivers and recovery time. Now you've got a, a new issue to contend with. And again, it's about the chemistry of, of the river. The fundamental point, actually, is that, that rivers are at risk of a whole range of different kinds of stresses, whether they be acid rain or climate change or pollution. One of the things we have to be far better at doing is understanding how those multiple stresses work and interact and, of course, how we can manage them, safeguard the organisms that live in rivers and all of the processes, the services that we derive from river ecosystems. Steve Ormerod and Matthew Dre from Cardiff University on how the atmosphere affects our rivers and streams. Every so often here on the Planet Earth podcast, we give scientists an audio recorder and send them off to make their own recordings. Well, this time we're going to hear from Laura Wicks from Harriet Watt University, who's just returned from a four-week expedition to collect and study cold water coral in the Atlantic waters off the west coast of Scotland. Laura's looking at how corals will cope with the effects of climate change. And here's a dispatch from onboard ship. We join her as the remotely operated vehicle, or ROV, emerges from the waves. So tonight's task is processing all the samples that we've just brought up on the ROV. Some of these go into the microbial analysis, but what we're aiming to do at Harriet Watt is run this long-term experiment on board the ship. We're out here for a month, and we're collecting Lophelia pertusa, which we'll be putting into holding tanks where we'll change the environmental conditions. ROV is just about to land on deck, and it's dark out here. It's pretty damn cold being out in the Atlantic. But everyone's looking pretty excited. So the corals we've brought up are actually looking pretty happy. You can tell when a coral isn't stressed because it's got its polyps out. The coral that we're looking at is Lophelia pertusa. This is a white coral, and if you were looking at it as if it were a tropical coral, you would think it was dead. It looks like a bleached coral from the barrier reef. But it's not. It's actually very happy and it seems to cope very well with the stress that we've just put it through, bringing it up to 1,000 metres. What we'll now do is get them into the tanks. We've got a team of people helping with this. We've got scientists from lots of different institutes, from Plymouth Marine Lab, University of Glasgow, and we've got some students from Harriet Watt who are learning loads of being out at sea. It's a whole new experience for these guys and they seem to be really enjoying it. Now I'm out in the hangar. This is the area to the back of the ship where we've got all our experimental tanks set up. There are six big green tanks, each with about a 1,000 litres of water in them. And in these, we've got some coral fragments that we've collected from the reef out at Mingle and also out at the Logachev Mounds. We've changed all the environmental conditions in these tanks. So we have one that's set at 9 degrees Celsius, which is what these corals are used to, and they've got a CO2 level of 380 parts per million. This is normal conditions for these corals. We then have a tank where we've increased the temperature by 3 degrees up to 12, a tank where we've increased the CO2 in it up to 750 parts per million, and a final tank where we have 12 degrees and 750 parts per million. Now, this tank is the one that is what's predicted for the future. It's now 4am and I'm just going upstairs to the radiation container where I'll be doing some work looking at the calcification of these deep water corals. The corals were collected yesterday by the ROV and we put them straight into tanks in the hangar to give them a chance to get over the shock of their rapid ascent from 1,000 metres depth. And today I'm going to look at how fast these corals are calcifying. 
this is really important for us to know to see how fast these reefs are actually going to grow and how any of this might change with the changes in the ocean chemistry. That's all done and now I'm going back down to the chemistry lab while I'll be taking some measurements of coral respiration. This is another measure we can use to see how the corals are actually functioning down on the bottom of the ocean. Out on the back deck there's plenty going on as well as we've been box coring all night getting up samples from this Hebridean seamount to look at the benthic communities that are found down there. This involves quite a lot of mud and quite a lot of cold scientists out there in the dark sieving furiously making sure that they recover all of the animals that have come up in this thick mud. Not a very nice job. That was the sound of the core coming back on deck. It's picked up another benthic sample and we've got more mud that we'll get onto the back deck to sieve. Laura Wicks at sea in the Atlantic. And you can hear more about Laura's research on cold water corals in a past edition of our podcast. The easiest way to find it is to visit Planet Earth online and search for cold water coral. There's also a blog, though, on the expedition, which you can find on the web. Just search for Changing Oceans 2012. And that's the Planet Earth podcast, featuring research funded by the Natural Environment Research Council. I'm Richard Hollingham. Thanks for listening.